0: The title of the talk tonight is The Five Aggregates Are Not Self. It seems in the West today that the concern for the self has risen to a greater level uh, than I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I want to say that I kind of accept present company from this general observation. (laughs) I don't really mean you all when I point to this phenomenon because this practice doesn't lead to immediate selfish gratification. You may have noticed that. <laughs> this practice tends to frustrate self-centered desire on a regular basis. So you wouldn't be here if you were looking for a quick hit or a promotion of the self. Uh, and in fact, I feel you know most of the meditators I talk to have a a very strong altruistic motivation in their practice also. For most of you, I think there's a recognition this practice is not just about yourself, but it's bringing uh, clarity and, and warmth into our own being so that we can take that out into the world and affect many people's lives for the better. So I think we are in a, um, a fortunate group together for these six weeks or, or three months, quite a special a group of people but in the in the world in general things seem to be going in a little different direction and on on one of the reasons for this i think the role of families and the role of communities is getting weaker in western culture uh, by and large today and what that does is it leaves the individuals more alone and kind of isolated in a way that uh, we didn't used to be. It seems like when people can't locate themselves in a a larger context, either of family or of community, then the emphasis on the self kind of correspondingly gets bigger and more important. Without family and without community, the opportunities for service become much more limited and the, the need for morality even becomes less obvious. We don't see the ramifications of our actions so easily. And the, you know, the internet has kind of helped to promote some of this um, weakening, I think, of, of our culture. And I'm thinking of uh, websites like the one that uh, tries to connect people who are looking to be adulterers that had something like 37 million registered users when it was hacked this summer. That's kind of a very high proportion of the people in North America that were looking to have an extramarital or extra relationship affair. It's kind of shocking. And the internet also offers a lot of opportunity for self-aggrandizement. It's, So many people want to just increase the number of viewers on their YouTube channel or the number of followers on their Twitter feed. And fame becomes an end in itself. People no longer want to be famous for doing something. They just want to be famous for being famous. I don't remember this happening when I was young, but it's happening a lot today. Okay. Example, in 1976, there was a survey, and it asked people to list their life goals. Fame came in at number 15 out of 16 possible goals. Thirty years later, in 2007, a survey was taken about people's principal ambitions. Fifty-one percent of the people said that fame was one of their principal ambitions. Being famous was something they, they wanted. So, the self is a big deal. It's wants and needs and hopes and plans can become uh, paramount, can seem to mean everything. And even for us at our level of understanding and given altruistic motivation, still our decisions, our um, thoughts, our choices in life revolve mostly around uh, me, myself and I. So the I is the center for most of us as human beings. But what's interesting is, have you ever found it clearly? Have you ever found this thing called I in your life or in your meditation? William James, the philosopher and writer had a nice comment on it. He said, when I search for myself, all I can find is a tickle at the back of my throat. That's about as big as it gets. So in Dharma practice, we have the opportunity really to look into this question of the self and its concerns in some depth. And in fact, we really are encouraged to do this because the overemphasis on self can bring so much confusion and suffering. And correspondingly, if we can see it more clearly, there's a huge opportunity for freedom relation to it. So we might say a central question in meditation is exploring what do we mean by a self? What is the nature of the I? Is there in fact a self? What is the real understanding of it? What are the implications if we believe there's a self and how does it feel when that um, is not our central belief? I like this uh, statement by Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was a great uh, teacher in India, died, I think, in the 1990s. He said, all yogas have only one aim, to save you from the calamity of separate existence. So this is the aim of our practice also, to save us all from the calamity of separate existence. This is not, this inquiry into self is not primarily an intellectual exercise. It's not about thinking ourselves through the question of self or I. We introduce concepts, of course, so that those start to go in and hopefully loosen some of the solidity that we normally attribute to I or self. But the main form of insight has to come from our direct experience. It doesn't come from thinking about this stuff. So in the talk this evening, I really just want to plant some seeds. And over time, as these seeds settle, the hope is that they will flourish into insight under the conditions of some stillness and mindfulness. It's really the combination of the initial, turning to investigation, as Andrea talked about last night, but to meet that from a place of some steadiness of mind and some interest in uh, investigation. So because of that, uh, I don't want you to strain your brains too much tonight in trying to figure this stuff out. It's not really helpful. And when you go away, I don't want you to stay up all night either trying to figure it out. Please leave do your walking. Do your sitting. Go to bed. Have a good night's sleep, um, and let the let the words that make sense to you go in, resonate, and uh, gestate. They can take seed and sprout later. So let's start with what's kind of obvious. We are all individual beings. And the discussion or pointing to not-self doesn't change that. It doesn't try to argue against our individuality. We each had a certain uh, course in life. We have a journey from birth to death. Our bodies are clearly separate. Our mind streams are unique. So we're not trying to merge ourselves into some cosmic oneness. The individuality is true, and there are laws that govern our individuality. Laws of genetics and uh, psychology and karma that are all based on this understanding of individuality, an existence of some form that is accurate. But we could say that this is kind of the ordinary understanding of what beings are. And in that way, it's a conventional form of truth. But there is truth in the conventional understanding. So we're not trying to deny that altogether, but we want to understand it more subtly and in a more nuanced way. Because there's more to it than the conventional understanding. So, Suzuki Roshi has this nice comment. He was talking about this question. He said, of course, the bird that we see and hear exists. It exists, but what you mean by that may not exactly be what I mean by that. So this is what we want to understand. In what way do we exist? In what way do we not exist? as conventionally understood. Because there's something true and there's something that's not true in the conventional understanding. We can start to question this sense of self by looking into some of the logic in the way we use words. So we take a look at the way we use I and I'm not sure that it really hangs together all that well. Let me give you an example. If I ask, how old are you? The answer is pretty simple, right? Not a trick question. You know, you might say I'm 35 or I'm 64 or whatever it is, comes easily. We all understand what that means. But all that really means is the body is 35 or 64, right? The thought you're having right now, is that 35 years old? The mood you're feeling right now, is that 64 years old? No. We mean the body came out of the womb 35, 64 years ago. So here, when we're using the word "I," we mean the same as the body. I'm 35 means the body is 65, so "I" equals body. But if I ask you, what color are your eyes? You know, and you'd say they're blue or brown or hazel. Then you say, my eyes are brown. But now we're not pointing to me as the body, but now they're my eyes, it's my body. So I am now the owner of the body. So that implies something separate from the body that owns it. And this is kind of a usual feeling, isn't it? That this is my body, that I possess it. So which is it? Are you the body or are you something separate That possesses the body? And can you really be both? We can do a similar thing with emotions. I could say, how are you feeling? You might say, I'm happy or I'm sad. So here there's an equating of I with the emotion. Happiness, sadness, that's I right now. But we could also talk about my joys and my sorrows, my feelings. So then I'm someone standing apart from emotion that owns them. So are you the emotion or are you the owner of it? And can they both be true? Or there's another sense that we often have, I think this is a very common sense of self, that there's a being inside the middle of the head that's located, you know, a couple of inches back from the eyes and between the ears that's kind of perched on a little stool up there (laughs) and looking out and observing the world and experiencing everything that comes in through the sense doors. I don't know if you saw Woody Allen's film, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex, but Tony Randall played this being in that film. He was the command and control center in the brain that was directing all the activity of the being. So that's another sense we have of the I as the observer, who is sort of in in the center of everything, but to some extent, independent of it. And letting things come in, but having some kind of stable existence apart from the things that are coming in. So these are five ways that we might think of or feel the word I, and I'm not, sure they can all be true. I'm not sure but that they might have some internal contradictions with each other. The Buddha put it this way, in whatever way they conceive of self, the fact is ever other than that. One of my teachers put it even more bluntly. He said, everything you think is wrong. So I would invite us to hold that as a possibility. Maybe everything we think about the self is wrong. And that leads into this line I heard on the radio, I think it was a talk show, and somebody on the radio said, ah yes, the mind, often wrong, seldom in doubt. (laughs) So it's helpful to consider that as we deal with this question of I, we don't, often see the inaccuracy. That's like the delusion that people have been talking about. So one of the things that might be interesting for us is to consider how the Buddha saw us, because he was a a person of some clarity, of vision. How did he see a person? How did he see a human being? So there's this interesting passage in the Vasudhimagga. Vasudhimagga is a sixth-century text from Sri Lanka that kind of compiled the uh, available meditation techniques and insights at that time in the evolution of Buddhism. This was, You know, this was already almost a thousand years after, after the time of the Buddha and quite a lot had built up at that time. So it was written by a monk named Buddha Gosa who compiled what was available then. He's a well-known commentator. And in the Vasudhi there's a passage that says, you know, if we want to look into what a person really is, as a skilled meditator, it's a little bit like a butcher who's skilled at his craft, and he's cut up a lot of carcasses of cows and steers. And such a person, in carving up the carcass of a cow to sell the flesh to others would not, as he cuts it up, keep going cow, cow, cow. A skilled butcher would be recognizing rump, sirloin, tenderloin, ribs. So the Vasudhimagga said, in the same way, someone who is skilled in understanding the mind and body does not, in examining it, continue to say person, person, person. Rather we see in a more refined way all the parts that make us up. These parts typically were described by the Buddha in two different models. It's covering the same terrain but there were two different approaches that he took. So let me read you one from the first part of the way that he would look. Bhikkhus, he said, what is the totality of life? It's a good question, right? <laughs> Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of life. It is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and touches, the mind and mind objects. Anyone who said they were going to describe anything beyond this as the totality of life would not be speaking of something they knew about. So these are, I know you'll recognize, these are the six senses, the organs and the objects of the five physical senses and the mind as the sixth sense. I like this description. First, it's very bold, isn't it? I mean, who else would describe the totality of life? I don't think. Einstein tried that. I don't think Marx tried that. I don't think Freud tried that. But 2,600 years ago, the Buddha did it. And can you argue with it? It includes everything, doesn't it? It Includes it all. So this is a map that applies really well to our meditation, because what we're often doing is looking at in the meditation instructions, and as you carry them out, our direct sense experience, sight sound, sensations in the body, smells and tastes when those are happening. Thoughts and emotions are the principal mind objects that we include. So this is a really good list for meditation instructions. Uh, We rely on it a lot. It's very helpful. The Buddha used this map primarily to cut through craving. He would point out how we get attached to pleasant experiences at the six Sense Doors and then how to see that attachment and how to cut it. But there's another map that he used, I would say just about as often in the Discourses, and this map is called the Five Aggregates. It covers the same terrain in that it also includes everything that's in our direct experience, but it divides it up differently. We'll go into that in a little bit of of detail. But the interesting thing to me is that the way he used the five aggregates was mainly to cut through a misunderstanding of what constitutes the self. So you could say he used the six senses largely to cut through craving. He used the five aggregates to cut through wrong view. So this is the map that we want to uh, explore tonight. Learning to see ourselves according to this second map is really, really helpful because it leads us into seeing the way the Buddha saw, which is without the confusion or the falseness of the sense of self. So that's why it's useful to start to explore and to look at it in our own experience. It's also not an intellectual exercise. It's primarily experiential. it came very alive for me at a time when my older sister died. She was 5 years older than me and she died when she was 51. So I guess I was I was 46. It was it had a lot of impact on me because it came suddenly and unexpectedly. She had she had a chronic condition but she was nowhere near dying. There was no hint that um, that might happen to her. And then, you know, I got a call. Your sister has passed away. It happened at home. One of her sons was with her. She lost consciousness. They called the medics. They rushed her to the hospital, but she never uh, revived to consciousness and died that evening. And we, we were pretty close, so uh, it had a, had a real impact on me. And I couldn't understand sort of where she had gone. We'd had a phone call the week before, um catching up on news. She had a kind of a big personality and she was she was a statement in the world my sister mm-hmm. um and so to have her go it was it was bewildering you know I couldn't understand how somebody that big had just gone and the only way that I could sort of resolve it for myself, was by understanding the five aggregates and how they had been put together to make her up. And then what happens when the aggregates fall apart or break up at death. And it was that inquiry that helped me understand, you know, what happens at death to some extent, limited extent, but to some extent, what happens at death. So I hope this will um, also help explain some of that. The mystery really of living and dying. So uh, the Pali term for the aggregate, an aggregate is khanda. The Sanskrit term is skanda, so you might hear either of these in Buddhist writings. And it's an ordinary kanda is an ordinary word in Pali. Uh, it's not a spiritual uh, word particularly, it just means a heap or a bundle. Uh, so if you get, went out and gathered a bunch of kindling uh, to start a fire. You could call that a conda of firewood or kindling. So when we put it in English and we call it aggregate, that sounds very technical to me. You know, it reminds me of some paving mixture that gets spread on the road when they resurface this thing. Uh, a little too scientific. So what I, what I like better is um, call it the five kinds of stuff. <laughs> So there are these five kinds of stuff that make us up and that's what we want to, to go through. So they are material form, you could just call it matter, feeling tone, perceptions, formations and consciousness. So I wanna go through this list and explain each one in a little detail. So we'll come to understand what a meditator can see as we are, let's say disassembled. So, form is the first one. The Pali word is rupa. Um, it's, this word rupa is sometimes used to be, mean body, like the statue behind me is sometimes called a Buddha rupa, the form of the Buddha or the body of the Buddha. But the word rupa is wider than just body. Actually, the word for body in Pali is kaya. So, rupa means something bigger than that. Let me read you the definition. This is from uh, a sutta, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, this is the material form aggregate of rupa. So it means all physical nature. It means this body, but also all the matter that's outside this body. And not only the matter, you know, internal or external, near or far, it also means all the interactions among matter. So, you know, when you put uh, a piece of uh, veggie burger on your tongue, the taste that comes from that is also rupa. When you're leaning over the Swiss chard, the smell that comes up and touches your nose is also rupa. So rupa is the world of matter and the interactions, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch are all different forms of rupa. So this first aggregate covers the whole physical world. You know, that's, that's a big space. So for example, we take this physical thing and strike this physical thing. That sound that comes out is in the area of rupa. So the sound is an aspect of form the first aggregate. So you might sort of infer from this the other four aggregates must be mental and they are. So if you're looking for a a complete description of mentality from a Buddhist point of view, the four aggregates is a very good description of it. What makes up mentality? Okay. So the second aggregate is feeling tone. The Pali term is Vedna. I think we've talked about this quite a bit. We introduced it in the instructions. It's the quality in every type of sense contact that it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Vedna forms the second foundation of mindfulness. Sally talked about the body as being the first foundation. Vedna is the second. And it points to the importance of this Um, factor in the whole of the Buddhist teachings. Why is this quality of Vedana given such importance? Second aggregate, second foundation of mindfulness. Very uh, central. The reason is that it forms the basis for reactive formations of mind. Greed, aversion, and delusion arise based on feeling tone being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. So, a pleasant feeling tone, the habitual reaction to that is greed. An unpleasant feeling tone, the habitual reaction is aversion. And the neutral feeling tone, the habitual reaction is delusion. Sort of overlooking or not not caring about. So, when one hears the sound. Generally that's experienced as pleasant, isn't it? (laughs) Just that the tone is kind of not, the bell was chosen to make a pleasant tone, the striker to be pleasant, but more especially because (laughs) the sitting's over, hey! So that has quite a pleasant Feeling tone, when we first start to tune into feeling tone, we tend to think that it's intrinsic to the object, that the sense object has an, an innate quality of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but that's not the case. If that was the case, feeling tone could be part of matter. The feeling tone, though, is not intrinsic to the sound. It's really about how the sound lands in your mind. And it's ultimately your mind that determines whether it gets interpreted or received as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. So, you know, simple example, some people like the taste of beets. I don't. Beets taste to me like dirt. (laughs) So, that's not experienced as a pleasant form of rupa to me. Another example, and this uh, this is quite amusing, There was a 7-Eleven in Southern California where there was drug dealing taking part in the parking lot. And this was uh, disconcerting to the manager of the store because when uh, drugs were being dealt, other customers didn't feel comfortable parking and coming into the store. So he would ask them to leave, and they wouldn't. He'd ask the police to come, and they'd run away for half an hour, and then they'd be back. And so he had to figure out a different strategy, so he thought, I'll play some music. So the music he chose to play was Montavani. I don't know if you remember Montavani. He was a composer from the nineteen fifties who had these very lush accompaniments to movie scores. So these <laughs> swelling strings and very melodic and sentimental. So, he put Montavani on and blasted it through the store's loudspeakers. The drug dealers couldn't stand it, so they all cleared out. <laughs> so, my mother was a great fan of Montavani. <laughs> she found it very pleasant. They didn't. So, the feeling tone is not in the thing, it's in our mind receiving it. So, Utejania, who we've mentioned a few times, talks about feeling almost as a verb how the mind kind of feels into the sense contact to feel whether it's going to be interpreted as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Another thing that's interesting is you'll find that the feeling tone of some sense experiences change depending on your meditative state of mind. So when you're first settling into a meditation and there's some pressure, on the the seat or pressure in the knee, that's easily experienced as unpleasant. As the mind settles more, let's say concentration strengthens and equanimity is stronger, this exact same sensation can be experienced as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's kind of interesting. So you can explore that. The feeling tone can change uh, for each of us. The third aggregate is called perception. The Pali term is sunya. This means a little differently in Buddhism than normal perception in Western language, philosophical or psychological. Often Western language interprets perception or defines perception as the sense contact itself. So it would talk about the perception meaning the sound or perception meaning the sight. But in Buddhism, it's not the the bare sense contact, it's the recognition of it. And recognition in terms of what we already know, or we could say in terms of, of memory. So for example, as you look around the room, typically you can pick out objects. There are people and shawls and cushions and chairs and floors and a bell and flowers and statues. So as you look around the room, you're identifying different things that are in the visual field. It's that categorization that is the perception. The visual field is really just form and color, isn't it? You know, sometimes you can see this better by closing one eye. You take the two dimensions out and mostly what you see are just patches or shapes with certain colors. But we've learned to interpret them as specific objects, people or chairs or whatever. But what's interesting is it's become so automatic, we don't realize that this categorization is something we learned how to do. We did it so young and we've done it for so long, we've lost track of that. And so we tend to look around the room and think the visual field is made up of different objects. It's not like that. The visual field is made up of patches of form with color, but we've interpreted them. So this is an interesting story from Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, and you know how he he really was so great at identifying places in human experience that were a little outside the norm and using that to shed light on our normal experience. So he was attending to a man, a man whose name was Virgil who had lost his sight when very, very young, probably in infancy. Virgil had met a surgeon who was able to do an operation on his eyes that restored his sight. And when this happened, Virgil was, I think, in his 40s. So he had been, uh, he had been blind for probably 40 years or so, and then had this operation and the family and the doctors were all gathered around his bedside, bedside in order to remove the bandages after the surgery. So the bandages were peeled away and everybody was waiting expectantly like Virgil was going to go, wow, this is so fantastic, I can see again. But it, that didn't happen. In fact, as Sachs describes it, Virgil seemed to be staring blankly, bewildered, without focusing, at the surgeon who stood before him still holding the bandages. Only when the surgeon spoke, saying, well, did a look of recognition cross Virgil's face. Virgil told me later that in this first moment he had no idea what he was seeing. There was light, there was movement, there was color, all mixed up. All meaningless, a blur. Then out of the blur came a voice that said, Well, then and only then, he said, did he finally realize that this chaos of light and shadow was a face, and indeed the face of his surgeon. So, what had happened is that his ability to perceive had not formed because he had lost his sight too young. And that part of the brain that puts it all together didn't develop as a normal person's would. So when he came back to seeing in his forties, he had not learned how to make sense of the patches of form and color. As the years went by, he developed more ability and he could function well in a simple environment where he had learned to identify the components. But he was not at ease, he was never at ease again going out into the street or the wider world or really unfamiliar places. Some of that wiring of perception never quite got completed again for him. So we are perceiving all the time. Uh, It's happening more or less automatically. We tend not to notice it, but we can start to tune into it. You know, normally we, we do that when something unusual happens. Um, but we can tune into it anytime we start to notice a thing, something standing out from the visual field that we single out and identify. Another thing to just take in about perception, it, it involves categorization into familiar objects, but it also carries with it some kind of meaning or association, kind of an emotional tone. For instance, if I say to you the word car, probably doesn't evoke a big emotional response. So, for me anyway, the word car has fairly neutral associations. But what if I say to you the word uh, Prius or electric vehicle? Do you get a nice glow out of that? (laughs) I do. (laughs) You know, I love the environmental consciousness behind the Prius and behind electric vehicles. You know, I think, oh, these are trying to save the planet, and people who drive them are really trying to make a contribution to environmental well being. And I don't think all those thoughts when I see a Prius, but I just feel warmly about Priuses, <laughs> or Prii, if that's what the plural yes. is. And similarly, when I see like a Ferrari going down the road, I may experience a touch of envy, but um, mostly I think about do they really need 12 cylinders, you know, on a suburban street? And isn't that a little no. damaging to the environment? So I have a different emotional response just on seeing a Ferrari. I hope none of you own Ferraris. I haven't offended anyone. I didn't see any in the parking lot. So, uh, so it, very simply, we have these immediate responses to things that we've known well. You know, think about a friend. When you perceive a friend, there's a whole emotional tone that comes just in the moment of recognition, or your child, or a mother, or father, or your partner. So perception often carries with it um, real connection and meaning and uh, flavor for us. Sometimes if we just stay with the label in which we've put a thing, we don't see it so clearly. Like we have an unpleasant sensation and we label it pain. The very label of pain can prevent us from going back in and feeling, what exactly is that sensation? The name can block the direct experience of what's actually happening. Okay, another example, take this thing. Normally, we think this is a bell. But I've known some monks whose begging bowls were about this size. (laughs) And it made quite a good uh, meal receptacle. Or we could imagine taking it out and using it as a nice little chapeau atop some statue. Wouldn't this be a cute cap for a, a rather larger figure? It could be that. It could also be a great planter, couldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice to have a little Bodhi tree in here <laughs> up on the platform? So if we just think it's a bell, we're missing something about it. We're not really seeing its, um, its thusness, you could call it, or its, its suchness. Like in, uh, in Zen, you know, this is a kind of common koan. What is this? If you call it a stick, I will hit you. But if you say it's not a stick, I will hit you too. What is it? So, what I got from that is that if I went to Zen a lot, I was going to get hit. So, that was partly why I chose Vipassana. Or there's another story about about, you know, Zen ko, a lot of Zen koans are about perception and seeing the thing as it is and not getting lost in concepts. So, back in the late 70s, some friends of ours in Cambridge understood that there were two masters in town from different Buddhist traditions. One was Sansonim, who was a Korean Zen master, very wise, very powerful. The other was Kalu Rinpoche, one of the most respected kagyu masters of, of our lifetimes. And they thought it would be very interesting to bring them together. And they rather imagined that these two masters would sort of just immediately recognize each other's enlightened nature and kind of dissolve into the bliss of emptiness together. <laughs> <laughs> so they brought them over for tea and uh, thought they would engage in some conversation. Each had a translator. So Sansanim kind of took the first... Uh, step and he picked up an orange off the plate and he held it out to Kalu and he said, What is this? <laughs> and um, Kalu Rinpoche just kind of sat there quietly doing his beads, you know, in his mala, probably just doing some mantra, didn't reply. So Sanseem thought he's, he's missing it and he held it out again and said, What is this? <laughs> And Kalu turned and said something to his translator, and the translator said, don't they have oranges in Korea? (laughs) (laughs) So This is a little bit (laughs) cross-cultural missing, which is easy to do, easy to do. Okay, so when we're sitting and we hear that sound, We recognize that's the bell. We recognize it is the bell to end a sitting. And that's our momentary, immediate perception. Doesn't require thought, just happens by itself. That's the third aggregate. The fourth aggregate is called volitional formations. The Pali term is sankara. These are sometimes also translated mental formations. So this is the whole world that we've been exploring We could call it objects of mind, primarily thoughts and emotions, moods, mind states. And so as such, it includes the uh, refined states of meditation. So mindfulness, concentration, calm, equanimity, loving kindness, compassion are all in here, as well as the hindrances, you know, the difficult emotions, the beautiful emotions. They're all in this realm of mental formations. Sankaras, they're sometimes also called karmic formations, because when you look at it closely, the way we form these objects of mind, they're coming out of some underlying intention. Desire is expressing an intention. You know, it's often an intention to draw closer. Aversion is expressing an intention, which is to push away or move away. Um, loving kindness is expressing an attention toward someone's welfare. Compassion expresses an intention toward easing someone's suffering. So even the beautiful uh, states of meditation, simple things like calm, um, like investigation, like concentration, are expressing an intention because they have been developed by uh, repeated effort for the most part. There has been an intention in us to sustain wholesome states. So they are also volitional. Their strength in us is the result of our own effort and volition and will. So for instance, when hearing the sound of the bell, there's often a sense of relaxation, sitting's over. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes when the bell rings, I think, oh, now I could sit forever. <laughs> as soon as it's over, it gets really easy, doesn't it? Anyway, it gets easier. So that sense of ease and then even the thought, oh, now I can sit for a long time. Those are both volitional formations in response to the sound. Okay, the The fifth aggregate is the most subtle and a really interesting one. I love the way that uh, the Buddha explained this quality. In English, we translate it as consciousness. It has a very precise meaning in, uh, in the Buddha's teachings, more precise than in the West. In the West, it's kind of more general. Anyway, in Buddhism, the, the Pali word used is vijnana, and it is the, it's the mental faculty in every moment of our experience that holds the sense object. It's so fascinating to to find this in our experience. Everything that's happening to us, we could say hearing the bell, knowing the feeling tone, knowing the mood that comes with it, recognizing it as a sound, that's being known to consciousness because we are sentient beings. And what sentience means is this quality that has experience, that knows experience. This is not an intellectual knowing. It's the, it's the most bare form of cognizing a sense experience. So as soon as there's hearing, there is consciousness in that hearing. If we were asleep, the, the sound might be there, but the knowing of it, the consciousness, wouldn't be. You know that old riddle, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around, does it make a sound? The, the answer is, it depends how you define sound, right? If you just mean the vibration of the air, if you call that a sound, then there is a sound. But if you mean the conscious experience of hearing, no. No. There is nobody conscious there to bring that sound into human experience. So consciousness is just that simple revealing or holding or receiving of sense data. It's happening all the time that we're awake. It happens very automatically. You can't turn it off. Sometimes you may wish that you could, right? The sitting's gone on a long time. Mind's all over the place. There's unpleasant sensation in the body. I wish I could just stop experiencing, but we can't. As long as we're awake, consciousness is doing its job, which is revealing data at the six senses. That's just happening. So that's what brings this ongoing contact with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. It said, as the Buddha explained it, that there's a separate sense consciousness for each of the six senses. So there's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, etc. But essentially, uh, this, the knowing is very similar, but it acts through the six sense doors. So this is a fun thing to investigate in practice. The way I understand it is that the An experience like this, the sound and the consciousness come up together. they can't really be uh, broken apart in your direct experience. In other words, the sound comes with the knowing of it. But you can you can separate you can discriminate or differentiate these two aspects of what's going on in your experience. So every sense experience. For a human being arises with consciousness, but you can start to feel out what's the sense object and what's the knowing of it. It's a relationship almost like the object is being held in the consciousness, in the knowing. So that may sound a little odd. There's one experience, but it's got two aspects, but it's not that odd. When you look at the bell from the side, is it round or is it black? Round or black? (laughs) It's both, isn't it? There's just one circle here, but it's got two aspects. You can either look at the form of it or you can look at the color. So similarly, when you hear a sound, you can either tune into the quality of sound or you can tune into your own knowing of it. And this is something that you can actually explore and feel in your meditation practice. It's actually the consciousness that knows the sound, the feeling tone, the recognition, the mood and the thought connected with hearing the sound of the bell. Okay, so this is the list. Form, including the matter and all the physical senses, feeling tone, perception, mental formations and consciousness or knowing. Is it kind of a funny list? I found this kind of a funny list when I first started to work with it. I think the funniest thing about it for me was matter made sense. mental formations made sense. Consciousness made sense. Why were feeling and perception tossed in and separated out as, as important as body mind objects and consciousness. That didn't quite make sense to me. But what's interesting is, when the Abhidhamma classifies our experience, they only put it into three categories, which is basically matter, mind objects, which they call citta, and uh, oh, sorry, they call cetasikas, and consciousness, which they call citta. So in the Abhidhawa model, they collapse feeling and perception into the fourth aggregate of mental formations. So this kind of made more, more intuitive sense to me. So if you want to think of your experience in terms of three aggregates, that's fine. So this talk could be the talk on the three aggregates. It works, um, it works for me. But you can play with five or you can play with these three. The important question is, Does this list, whether it's five or three, include everything in your direct experience? Is something you can explore? If it does, then it's an exhaustive list. It's a good list for our purposes. This list or this way of looking is freeing when we start to understand it. It's very freeing. Why is that? Because there's nothing else here. There's only form, feeling, perception, formations and consciousness. That's all there is to a human being. What's missing? I. There's no I in the center that is looking at all this stuff. There's no I in the center that is separate from all this stuff, there's no I in the center that's owning any of this stuff. There is only form, feeling, perceptions, formations, and consciousness happening according to their own causes and conditions. And the beauty of this kind of seeing is it takes out the fiction of control. When we establish an I, It's like queen me or king me at the center of everything. We sort of feel like it's our dominion. I should be in control of my body. I should be in control of my emotions. I should be in control of feelings. It's never worked because body, feelings, perceptions, formations, consciousness, all have their own laws and causes and conditions. For instance, um, looking at the body, particularly, how many times have we felt proud of our body? Oh, I'm looking good today. (laughs) Walking well today. Or on the other hand, how many times have we felt embarrassed about our body? You know, too big or too small, too thin or too heavy, you know, too narrow or too broad. But did we have anything to do with that basic makeup? We take so much either pride or embarrassment about it. Was it our fault? Did you have anything to do with constructing the overall form of body? And whether you're tall or short, or whether your hair is curly or straight, or whether your bones are broad or narrow, no, you know, you know know what happened. Father's sperm met mother's egg, they joined, they divided and multiplied. At a certain point, that form emerged from the womb. It was nourished by milk and water and air and light and food over years and years and years. And this is the outcome. It's a purely physical thing that has done its own thing. We've been along for the ride, you might say. But we didn't have any control over it. Why? Because it's just part of physical nature. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's just part of nature. And as such, our bodies are not very different. You know? The differences between our bodies are really, really small compared to the similarities. Any level you look on, from DNA up to kind of comparing side by side, we all have the same basic components. This is from Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of my teachers in Thailand, said, this body came out of nature, it's part of nature, and it never departed from nature. It belongs to nature, so give it back, that will be a big relief for you. (laughs) And this is the way we understand all the aggregates. The body is part of physical nature. Emotions are part of human nature. Consciousness is part of a bigger nature than that. It's kind of like every sentient being has this factor of consciousness. We're we're united with the creatures in this way, but our emotions are part of the human nature. Consciousness is part of all nature, all sentient nature. So the Buddha said, therefore all forms should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And similarly for feeling, perception, formations and consciousness. But so often we claim it, don't we? We think this is mine, or I am this, or this is myself. That's what gets us into trouble, that's not clear seeing. When we see clearly, the Buddha said, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. Why become disenchanted? Because they're all impermanent. None of them offer offer the possibility of lasting happiness. So disenchanted doesn't mean we hate it, doesn't mean it's disgusting, doesn't mean we're averse to it. We just see, oh, it doesn't have the promise to bring me lasting happiness. So we kind of let go and stop looking there. Being disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, one's mind is liberated. When it is liberated, one understands birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more renewal of being. So this teaching on not-self goes deep. It is the way through understanding impermanence to let go of clinging through all the forms of sense experience to any of the five aggregates. And in that letting go, the mind rests, and in the deep resting and non-resistance becomes liberated. In the shorter term, I'll just uh, relate this quote from an old Sri Lankan monk. Jack Kornfield went to visit him, I think when Jack was still in robes. And a very happy being, had been in robes a long time, just had a lot of joy. And the monk, old monk, wanted to check Jack out. So he said, what's your understanding of central teaching of Buddhism? And Jack said, my understanding is there's no actual separate self within this mind-body process. And the old monk just nodded and said, no self, no problem. (laughs) He just laughed and laughed. So this is a message when we understand properly, it's just causes and conditions. No self, no problem. Okay, let's just sit for a minute together. Therefore, all should be seen as it really is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org